Welcome to the Proverbs 910 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth. We're your hosts and co-founders of Proverbs 910 Ministries, Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. Today, we're going to dive into something that's been a pretty popular discussion on social media for a while. How marriage affects government welfare programs. Everything from welfare to Medicaid, as well as disability, and even the distribution of Social Security funds. Rose, we're addressing this issue because it often puts Christians between a rock and a hard place when it comes to deciding whether to get married or not. And it's because of what's called the marriage penalty. In a lot of cases, choosing to get married means taking a big hit to your wallet. You know, this subject touches the lives of young people, middle-aged people, and even retirees. Christians of all ages are asking the questions, I'm in love with someone and I know the Bible says not to have sex outside of marriage and I want to please God, but if I get married, I'll be giving up a lot of money. What should I do? Yeah, more and more Christians are asking things like, how should I view getting married when it's going to hurt me financially? And is God okay with just living together if it's going to be a hardship financially? From the questions being asked, you can tell a lot of Christians in these situations would like to get married. If they didn't, they wouldn't be asking the questions. But there's a good bit of advice being bannered around about the subject, and much of it doesn't line up with the Bible, even within Christian circles and in Christian social media groups. Right, and our intent, as always, is to see what the Bible has to say about the subject. No human judgment calls matter. The Bible is a Christian's authority because it's God's word to us. And Rose, we also want to give Christians who find themselves in these situations hope. We do. So Chris, let's start by giving a couple examples of how government laws about marriage affects the funds in the different scenarios. Like you mentioned, this is referred to as the marriage penalty. It falls into three broad categories, social welfare benefits, disability benefits at any age, which come from Social Security, and Social Security for widow or widowers. What kind of hit are we talking about here? Well, let's talk about the one that's not quite as complicated first, and that is people who are widowed and want to remarry. A widow or widower who's receiving their deceased spouse's Social Security for their income totally loses the rights to that income if he or she marries before they're age 60. Those are benefits that were paid into Social Security by their deceased spouse. So what you're saying is if a widow or widower marries someone else before they turn 60, he or she has no right to their first spouse's benefits, even though their first spouse worked for them and earned them, and even if that's the only income the surviving spouse has to live on. That's what I'm saying. They'd have to give up the first spouse's social security payments. They'd be eligible for the new spouse they're going to marry's social security when they die, but they never get both. So let's say a young widow who's like 40 or 50 and she's living on her deceased spouse social security check of $1,500 a month. She meets someone and they fall in love. They get married and it's bye-bye $1,500 or whatever amount she's receiving. But her deceased husband paid into social security all the years he worked. And she might have too because like you said, you never get two social security payments. That's right. You never get two. That's how it works. So that's why people refer to this as the marriage penalty. It's a big penalty. It's a big loss. Okay, so now I'm getting mad. (laughs) I can see why Christians are struggling with this decision. Totally. 
And we're used to thinking about this subject affecting younger people who have kids and are on welfare, but this is proof, like we said, it affects all ages. It is. And the Social Security example is the easiest example since it's federally the same across the board. But other examples are not so clear cut. Social welfare programs vary from state to state and there's multiple programs. But those Christians are in the same boat when it comes to making this decision whether or not to get married. They are. Because these programs have a marriage penalty too. For example, from one state, a couple with one infant earning $30,000 each faces over $13,000 in marriage penalty. That's 20% of the family's income, largely because they lose a portion of their childcare benefit because each adult would qualify for that benefit. But if they marry, that changes. That's a ton of money to take out of your budget each month. But I see why two people don't both need the same benefit for the same child. That's right. And there are reforms being talked about that would lessen the financial blow by making things more in line with how they should be. These are reforms that would make it so it wouldn't be such a huge blow to the couple financially and that would benefit taxpayers. But for the most part, these reforms are not implemented yet. Chris, I've been hearing that there's another trend that's related to what we're talking about, and that's people getting divorced in order to be able to qualify for government benefits. Have you heard about this? I have. In this case, it's married couples, one of whom gets ill. In many cases, these are couples who've done everything according to the book, so to say. One or both of them worked, they raised their kids, they saved money, they buy a house, they invest wisely for retirement, and then one of the spouses gets a major illness. And although they have what's deemed to be pretty good health care, or they're older and they're on Medicare, they find that everything they've saved, everything they own, everything they wanted to at least partially leave as an inheritance for their families is slipping away because of deductible and co-payments. And it's frustrating. I can see why they consider divorcing so that the person who's ill can go on Medicaid or continue to get their SSI and the other spouse can save their hard-earned assets. I can see the temptation to do that too. It would be a crushing blow to say the least to watch everything slip away, especially if you've worked hard, lived modestly and saved. And we know that many of our senior citizens watch their hard-earned savings and assets slip away for reasons like this, and it makes you mad. But at the same time, the people who are affected that are Christians are still called to live life in a godly manner, regardless of the government and its rules. And that seems to be where most Christians find themselves. Right, and that's why we're asking the question. That's why they're asking the question. It puts people in a really tough, like you said, emotionally devastating position because people love each other and they want to stay married if they're thinking about getting divorced for this reason or they love each other and they want to get married. And for Christians, the Bible never gives financial reasons as a cause for people living together without marriage or for biblically divorcing. So it's devastating to be in this position. Mm -hmm. And the church needs to be able to respond compassionately and support people emotionally and in other ways if feasible as people walk through this. Right. So now that we've established what the gist of the problem is, let's take a look at some of the advice being given on social media and what the Bible has to say about that advice. I just want to throw a reminder in there that we're talking to people who are Christians, who are asking questions surrounding the topic because they want biblical answers and they want to honor God. Exactly. So Rose, one of the most common pieces of advice out there when people ask this question is, 
God wouldn't want you or your partner and especially not your children to suffer by losing this money. Therefore, go ahead and keep cohabitating unmarried. God understands and he sees your heart. Well, there's several things wrong with this statement. First, God does indeed see our hearts and the Bible says that our hearts are wicked, not good. Second, Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. From the very beginning, God's design for sex has been between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And regardless of what people want to believe, God doesn't overlook something that he deemed sinful because of our earthly circumstances, in this case of having less money. 1 Peter 3 talks about suffering for righteousness sake. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason that the hope that is in you. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. And as much as our human nature would like the Bible to say that we can ignore what it says, especially when it involves our children, that's not what we see. Even the early martyrs knew this. I think of Perpetua, an early Christian martyr who was 22, born to a wealthy family, and the mother of an infant son. Perpetua had her infant with her when she was thrown in the Roman jail, but eventually gave her child to her family. She had numerous chances to recant her faith, and her father even begged her to, quote-unquote, have pity on her baby and choose to stay alive. But she would not forsake God, not even to stay alive so that the baby would have its mother. And that flies right in the face of some advice being given today. But Perpetua trusted God, not only with her own self, but with her child's life after she was gone. Chris, another bit of advice being thrown out there in this situation is that Christians can decide to be celibate. And that's a God-honoring answer, albeit a tough one, especially in those cases where the two are already living together when one or both of them becomes Christians, and even harder in some cases when they already have kids together. It would be a total change, that's for sure. Mary and Joseph, the earthly mother and father of Jesus, were betrothed to be married, which in Jewish culture was somewhat like modern engagement, but more legally binding. This engagement bond was so strong that it would have been considered divorce to break it, according to Matthew 1.19. So Mary and Joseph were legally, spiritually, and emotionally committed to each other. In Luke 2, we see they even traveled to be registered for the census together, but they weren't sexually active, which we know because Jesus was born of a virgin. Right. So in some ways, even their betrothal was almost as if they were married, but it wasn't finalized and they stayed pure. So that's a really good example to, for being celibate. Okay, Rose, let's talk about another piece of advice given over and over again. Get married in the eyes of God, but don't tell the state. Is that a thing? Absolutely. <laughs> that's, what, that's one of the pieces of advice being given. So it means no paper trail. Right. The reason people try to give for this is that marriage was a man-made idea. But Chris, that's not true. No, it's not. Marriage was ordained and instituted by God. 
What I'm saying is that marriage was not invented by men, but by God. And we see this in the creation account. We find God creates in stages, beginning with light and ending with the process of creation of man. At every stage, he looked at what he made and he said, that's good. But then God saw in his creation something that was not good. And in Genesis 2.18, God declares, it is not good that man should be alone. Then he created Eve and he brings her to Adam. And we see marriages all through the Bible. Marriage is supposed to reflect the relationship between God and his people and Jesus in the church. Exactly. Marriage is foremost a vow before God, but it's also a public declaration to the world that a new relationship has begun. A permanent commitment has been made, just like Jesus' commitment to his church. And God has always covenanted, meaning made a promise, a binding agreement with his people. In Deuteronomy 29, God made a covenant with his chosen people Israel and their descendants. And heaven and earth were the witnesses, according to Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. The bottom line is, a public marriage ceremony should happen. And it's definitely supposed to be a public thing. There are many ceremonies all throughout the Bible, and one of them is marriage ceremonies. Ceremonies have had their place. I'm not saying you have to have a big splashy wedding to be married. And if you're a Christian living together, waiting until you have enough money to get a big splashy wedding so you can honor God and get married, that's just silly. But the point is, Chris, this is supposed to be something proclaimed to the public. The wedding feast at Cana, where Jesus turned water into wine, was a celebration. And the images of feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb and other images of weddings in the Bible indicate that it's not a private affair. Marriages weren't happening by two people whispering and vowing their love to one another in the backseat of a car. Or on the backseat of a donkey. (laughs) (laughs) No, but you're right. People try to defend this position by saying that Isaac and Rebecca didn't have a ceremony, that he just took her into his mother's tent. But all of the arrangements for the marriage had already been made and the intent to marry was made public before that happened. No matter how much someone says, we feel like we're already married in God's eyes, this has to be a public affair, not private. There needs to be witnesses. It doesn't have to be a big, splendid and expensive affair, but people must witness it happening. I agree. So that leads to the question, what exactly is marriage in the eyes of God? Well, people want to argue they're married in the eyes of God when the pastor pronounces you husband and wife at the end of the ceremony. But, and this is the sticking point on the subject, in the eyes of the government, you're not married until the paperwork is done. God didn't need the state to sanction something before he does. That's the advice people give when they say get married in the eyes of God. Right. God didn't need the state to sanction marriage, but he's given the government to people for their good, and most states require a marriage license for good reasons. There are protections for the couple, for the children, and there are other good benefits of having a legal marriage. Things that are intended to help take care of, promote, and nurture families who are formed when people get married. I think people don't often think about it this way, but God is the one who gave us governments. And it's illegal in most states for a couple not to get a marriage legalized. It's also illegal in most states for the official performing the ceremony not to legalize it, but to keep it a secret. Not many people want to ask their pastor to commit a crime. (laughs) I would hope not. (laughs) But that's the advice being given. And Christians are to follow the rules of government they're under, not break them, unless the rules explicitly go against the word of God. And we know that legal marriage between a man and a woman is not going against God's word. Right. 
We're to obey the laws of the land and only when they're in conflict with the Bible should we not obey the laws of the land. God is completely sovereign over all governments throughout the whole world, both good and bad, believe it or not. Yes. Romans 13.1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Not only that, but God established where we're going to live. Acts 17 verse 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That tells us that God is not caught off guard by the fact that the government rules are what they are wherever he's placed you, and that this was going to be a predicament for you. God's certainly not caught off guard by anything, and he expects us to obey at all times. He does. But Rose, we have people who are now trying to say that since the government is blatantly ignoring God's design for marriage anyway, that the marriage law can and should be ignored altogether. Chris, that's like saying because the government is ignoring God's word in one area that we should too, even if it's technically about something totally different. This strikes me as an excuse for people to do what they want. The law still upholds marriage between a man and a woman. Therefore, Christians should obey the law and get married legally and on paper. And looking at this from a further biblical perspective, saying you want to marry in the eyes of God meaning without paperwork because it's going to affect your finances, is really nothing but skirting around the truth. It's deceitful, so it's still sinning. I agree. And trying to get around a law that God knew was coming to be in place when he put you in this country, in the state and locality that he planned, isn't advice Christians should be giving to one another. No. So, Chris, let's take a look at common law marriage. Is common law marriage marriage in the eyes of God? Well, I was kind of surprised about common law marriage because I've always heard people talk about that. And it's a common assumption that if you live with a person for a long time, you're automatically married. That you have what's called common law marriage with the same rights and responsibilities as a couple who's been legally married. But in most states, it's not recognized as marriage. And even in those where common law marriage is recognized, there's a whole host of problems that you might have down the road when it comes to hospital visitation, estate rights, and tax liability, and other things. And if you live in a state where it's recognized and moved to one it's not, you're not considered married in that state. Hmm. And from a biblical perspective, there's no ceremony, no promise before God, no witnesses, no promise before anyone. It's really no different from a biblical perspective today than whispering to each other in the backseat of a car or a donkey. Common law marriage came about at points in time when there was no clergy available and no state representative available to marry people for long stretches of time. For instance, in small villages a long time ago in England. But today, there's plenty of options for getting married. So not having someone to perform a ceremony is not an excuse. Right. So Rose, we've given the biblical responses to the advice that's out there. But one of the things we want to address is how the church responds. Well, for one thing, they need to address it and not sweep it under the rug or turn a blind eye. People in local churches need to come alongside people in these situations and walk with them. Definitely not judge them or look down their noses at them. I agree. For people to come forward for help, they need to be confident that they're going to find love and find support, not judgment and a cold shoulder. And each church could figure out what practical things they may or may not be able to do to help. 
There's a church where the pastor was so burdened by people in the congregation living together without being married that he did something about it. Pastor Brian Carter of Concord Church in Dallas, Texas, was so concerned about the decline of marriage, divorce, cohabitation, and casual sex, he encouraged cohabitating singles to marry, and the church paid for everything. As the article says, from the rings to the wedding cake. Yeah, he preached on the subject one Sunday, and he gave three biblically-based suggestions for people cohabitating. To start the process of getting married to move to separate spaces but continue to date, or to break up. The article even says that every three years, the Concord Church agrees to do this. They even pay one month's rent to help couples find suitable living arrangements so they aren't living together unmarried if they're not sure if they want to get married or not. The article can be found at christianpost.com. It was a good article. What else would you like to say about how churches should handle this, Rose? Well, if you find yourself in any of these situations or know another Christian who is and they're looking to find a way out, make sure you're informed or they're informed about all the resources available, not just government resources, but local nonprofit resources and donations. Good point. The point is, talk to someone and ask questions. Like we've been saying, there's a lot of bad advice out there. And I think it goes without saying that the prosperity gospel hasn't helped. Being led to believe that God wants all Christians to be happy all the time as well as prosperous and healthy isn't truth. But it's been told to people for so long now, a lot of Christians believe their lives are supposed to be that way all the time, even if they don't follow what the Bible says. Rose, when we are facing financial trials, we tend to think that God has abandoned us. What would you say to that? I'd quote Hebrews 13.5, which says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes we think he's uninterested or indifferent to our problems, though, or maybe just too busy to care about us. But scriptures tell us something different for that, too. Matthew 10.29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. But what would you say, Rose, to someone who really believes that God will not see them through this? Well, first, I love that Matthew passage, one of my favorites. And Chris, one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Ephesians. And in the very first chapter, Paul is telling believers that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world and that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. From that, we know that God has had a plan for us before the beginning of the world and that we were chosen and loved by him from that time too. God never leaves us without hope. And another thing is when people are asking for advice about this on social media, there are also Christians who respond that they were once in the same boat, but they stepped out, trusted God, and got married anyway. And I would encourage those people to keep giving hope. Share your testimonies. And that's where we have to end today. If you have any comments or questions about today's episode, please feel free to leave them on the podcasting site you've been listening from or go to our webpage, Proverbs910Ministries.com As always, we would love to hear from you. Have a blessed day.